This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Fed Life, a weekly roundup of news about federal pay and benefits, employment policy, and investing and retirement planning. Brought to you by WEPA. Here's your host, Tom Temin. Hello, and welcome to the show. This week, we start with a look at something the Thrift Savings Plan has been struggling with, namely mutual funds. In the belief that federal employees and retirees might want a wider range of investment options, the TSP board instituted the so-called mutual fund window. Few people have actually used it. Now there's a gambit in Congress to bar sales of funds with a strategy relying on ESG, or environment, social, and governance concerns. For analysis, I spoke with certified financial planner Art Stein. I feel like the uh, TSP, when I think about it, it's like no good deed goes unpunished. Here they, you know, they've had complaints throughout the years that they didn't have enough choices, and they are very few, the, the number of choices in terms of investment sectors. And so they put in this mutual fund window, uh, which contains, for people who use it, there are about 4,600 funds in it. And um, every type of investment you can make with a mutual fund is pretty much included. And so it's great in that sense, but very few people have used it. Um, And I mean like very few well, let me ask you this on, on, on the few people using it. I mean, people invest their, in their TSP. There's a checkoff from their paycheck. So the mutual fund window then would be, how does it operate? That is to say, can you have some of your weekly deduction or your, your every other week deduction from your paycheck go to one of those? Because those aren't strictly LG funds, et cetera, of the TSP. It's not super easy to use. I mean, the money that goes in the mutual fund window has to come from one of the traditional TSP funds, and then it can go in the mutual fund window. There are various restrictions on how much you can put in, minimums and things, and once the money is in there, it goes into a money market fund, and then you can invest in all these other funds. Problem one problem is that the fees for the mutual fund window are high. There's, there's no question about it. And, uh, these are the fees charged by the thrift savings plan. Uh, in some cases, yes, there are two, uh, annual fees of $105. Then there's a, a trading fee of 2875. I don't know that I doubt that goes to the TSP in any form. You know, whoever is running this for the TSP probably keeps that money. But in, by today's standards, that's a pretty high trading fee. It sure is, yeah. And then the mutual funds have their expense fees, um, which, as far as I can tell, may be a little above average for mutual funds, but are certainly going to be higher than the funds that are currently in the TSP. Well, let me ask you this. If a federal employee wanted to invest in mutual funds and somehow have it as pre-tax dollars because the TSP is the equivalent of an IRA for everybody else, is there a way that they could lessen what they put in the official TSP accounts and then just spend their own money on a mutual fund and that could be an IRA for them and they would still have the same tax structure? 
Uh, no, I would say no. That if you want to buy mutual funds with your TSP money, this is the only way to do Got it. it. Okay. If you want to transfer, if you're over 59 and a half, you can transfer money out of the TSP into an IRA and then you'd have more than 4,600 or 5,000 funds to invest in lower trading fees. And so that's something that people can always do. I mean, you can always invest not in an IRA or pre-tax fashion or, or, or just you because could you're just an investor. invest, as you say, in a regular uh, brokerage account, individual account, which is taxable. And, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Because um, what I'm getting at is maybe the whole TSP's window for mutual funds was maybe not something that needed to exist in the first place, given the take up of it and given the kind of complicated, convoluted costs and procedures to take advantage of it. Well, I think you're right. And, you know, from the investor's point of view, especially if they're over 59 and a half and can transfer the money out, they can easily, you know, set up an IRA and then do whatever they want. From the TSP's point of view, they're trying to do what their customers want, their customers being TSP participants. And they did, but they had to do it in a certain way with certain expenses because they wanted to make sure that the cost of the mutual fund window was only paid for with money from the people who were using the mutual fund window. And that's one of the reasons you have $105 in $150 in annual fees. And so, you know, that was inevitable. Then they get into this other thing, uh, which is that, of course, some of these funds uh, invest in what are called ESG investments, environmental, social, and governance. And that these are mutual funds where they're uh, going to services at rate companies according to how well they do on an ESG store ESG score and then they invest in those only and I counted uh, there are 37 funds that have ESG in their name anyway in Congress and uh, you know it's become a political issue a lot of Republicans don't like ESG investments Okay, so there is a bill in Congress that would forbid the TSP from having e any ESG funds in any part of it, and apparently that includes the mutual fund window. And I think uh, TSP feels like if that passes, they're going to have to cancel the whole thing because they cannot regulate these 4,600 funds. And I agree with them because funds have a wide latitude in what they invest in, and they change, and it's just probably not possible for them to do. And, Tom, you may remember that a couple of years ago, I think it was, they were going to change the index for the I fund in the TSP, the International Stock Index Fund, which they need to do. I mean, that would have been a good thing. But members of Congress found out that, the fund they were considering, which they had decided to use, actually, uh, included investments in Chinese companies and protested, sure. and that whole thing ended. Well, there are 18 funds in this mutual fund window that 
have China in their name. They're specifically investing in China. So that could be an issue, too. Well, there's an interesting question here, though. The members of Congress that were trying to put an end to the ESG funds within the mutual fund window, again, if that is even possible, kept talking about taxpayer dollars invested in ESG or woke funds. And you may or may not want to invest in this type of fund. You know, personally, I would do guns, alcohol, and gasoline or something, but whatever. Motorcycles. <laughs> Motorcycles, <I know>. <laughs> right. <laughs> if it burns, it turns. But uh, the, the question is, that's not really taxpayer dollars at all. What- no. This is a voluntary program. The only money going into these funds is going to be the funds of TSP participants. So it's got nothing to do with the government. And because it's been set up so that the mutual fund window is self-supporting, there's not going to be any cost to the TSP to run this and set it up. Um, you know, there's no government money involved. Yeah, so I don't understand that because once you pay your federal employees, folks, it's not taxpayer dollars anymore. It's those people that earned it working for the government. I mean, that yeah, seems and so making basic. making decisions on their own. That's right. And, you know, the TSP, you know, they want to keep as many dollars in the TSP as they can. And so this was one way that they could do that. Um, Let me ask you this. The ESG type of fund, it's not that new an idea. I think it got started maybe 20, 25 years ago. There were a couple of funds that famously said we're going to be, you know, virtuous in the things that we, by our definition of virtue, of what we invest in. Now there's a lot of them. And are they any good as far as investment vehicles? That is to say, what are their cost ratios? What are their returns? I mean, has anyone studied that? Well, that is subject to considerable debate. And one, and, and one reason is there is not general agreement on what an ES, what is a company that should be rated as a you know ESG-worthy company. There are five or six rating services and uh, they don't agree on lots of companies. So, and then there are also funds that invest in what they consider good based upon uh, religious values. Um, there used to be a Muslim fund. There may still be. There's certainly a Catholic fund. And uh, I, I don't know what Catholic values are when it comes to investing, but apparently something. And um, so there are those disagreements. Performance, it's harder to say. I don't expect that these funds are going to outperform. And there is reason to think that over long periods of time that they're going to underperform because money is going into them, not be into certain companies, not because they're a great investment and deserve that, but because they're ESG. Yeah, so I mean, it distorts the market. Yeah, look at these, how many electric vehicle startups have raised billions and then gone bankrupt. There's several of them, you know, or they can't deliver or they delivered a few cars and they're long-term outside of Tesla. Nobody's well, really and, done and it we yet. also ignore the fact that it's subject to the debate how good electric vehicles are for the environment when you take into account all all the special minerals that need to go into these, the fact that the batteries only last so long. I've seen articles that say, you know, you have to drive the vehicle for a very long period of time before it becomes overall good for the environment. 
So you get those disagreements. And um, it's just a very tough issue. Yes, well-intentioned as investors in ESG are, and maybe they're willing to accept a lower return because their values are being met by their investments, and that's everyone's personal decision, which we can't question. But then there's also the ability of companies calling themselves ESG or passing whatever markers, but there's a million ways to game that. Yeah, that it's called greenwashing. Greenwashing. They call it greenwashing. And um, so the whole ESG question, I think it's too bad. I mean, this was a valuable uh, change that the TSP made. It might not be that valuable. I mean, because only so many people are using it, very small number. And I doubt that it'll ever be huge. And it is expensive. And the trading fees especially are high but the 150 dollars a year is high too so but to throw in this esg controversy for investment money which tom as you say it hasn't it's not the government's money it, it's the tsp participants money um i think that's too bad certified financial planner art stein we'll take a short break and when we return some answers to the question of what can cause you to lose security clearance you're listening to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. Welcome back to FedLife here on Federal News Network. I'm Tom Temin. You've heard of the term cancel culture, getting rid of people with unpopular opinions. It's not all that new. The popular new movie Oppenheimer reenacts the revocation of the scientist's security clearance in the 1950s because of his opposition to the hydrogen bomb. What about today? Can unorthodox opinions mean loss of clearance? I got some answers from the managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinke, Dan Meyer. The key here is, Tom, that there's a fair amount of nuance required in these situations. The first thing to remember is that the movie Oppenheimer is about the classification and clearance process almost 75 years ago, and things have changed. But as a person becomes more of a celebrity, and Oppenheimer was a celebrity, the rules get distorted, and we're seeing that in, all, in spades across the federal government right now with uh, this classified document issue down in Florida. And the important thing for federal employees to remember is that they really don't want to be celebrities, okay? If you're the average Jane or Joe and you are following the guidelines as they've been issued to you in a document known as SEED4, S-E-A-D-4, then you're going to have a, a fairly neutral process and any distortion will be easy, for instance, for an attorney to figure out. But the last thing anybody should do is to look at what happens to celebrities when they're in these situations because they get treated differently because they're celebrities and that can be good for them or it can be bad for them. In the case of Oppenheimer, he was targeted because he was Jewish and he was targeted because he had left-wing views as an academic back in the, you know, prior to the Manhattan Project. There was also vicious competition on that project, and the movie brings us out well. Oppenheimer and Edward Teller were in uh, deep competition within that program, 
Keller went on to develop the hydrogen bomb. Oppenheimer was opposed to developing the hydrogen bomb, and that got mixed in. And the Army ended up with egg on its face at the end of that process, and the Oppenheimer hearings became standard teaching uh, in the national security field for the next half century. And the movie does a brilliant job of summarizing all of that. So the important thing is don't look at somebody getting a break because they're a celebrity or somebody getting worse treatment because they're a celebrity. Just focus on the fact that the, the rules can get distorted the more prominent the person is. And of course, vindication, you know, 30 years after you're dead doesn't really do much for a lot of people, I guess. And what if you feel that your clearance has been wrongly revoked? What kind of recourse does the average non-celebrity federal employee or contractor employee actually have? Well, two things on the, on the observation. First of all, I think it's important for the Army, for one. It would be nice to have the Secretary of the Army issue some sort of statement about Robert Oppenheimer. But also remember that Oppenheimer has descendants and family members who are still living. Um, And so it is important to clear the record when a wrong has been done. Same thing happened with the comedian Lenny Bruce, a good friend of mine, Robert Corn Revere, was in the movement to have him pardoned because he was targeted for special treatment because of his comedy routine in the 1960s, even though Lenny Bruce was long dead. That was an important thing to do. For the federal employee, the the key thing to understand is that most of the distortion is worked out of the security process, okay? The EEO concerns we always have, I don't see any of that in the security process. One, I think the uh, security system in general has been very good in diversifying. You see people of all uh, race, creeds, colors, disabilities uh, in the adjudication rank. And I think that brings some wisdom to their decision making. But if you do see distortion, if you do see something that's incorrect, you've got a couple of avenues. If there's a procedural failure, you can still go to federal district court. Doesn't happen often because these security cats are really good at what they do and they know they could get dragged into court if they make a procedural failure. So that's one thing. If you're a contractor in the Defense Department, you have the ability to petition the director of the defense office and hearing appeals if there's been some negligence in the handling of your clearance. Some people might have state-based actions against their company if there's been some tortious interference of contract or some defamation in the process. I'm always looking for those cases. They're few and far between, uh, but they're always worth analyzing. And then the court of all last resort, which everybody forgets about, is the United States Congress. You have a representative and two senators. And if you've really been screwed to the wall, then it's time to, you know, remember that you're an American citizen and help get somebody to get you help up on the hill to sort through this. All of these are very tough processes. What you want to be is the model security citizen and have this go through in the normal process, because that shows that you are right. a team player. The government sometimes sounds like Remo and Casino. Why take a chance, you know, <laughs> and shoot the guy? We're speaking with Dan Meyer. He is managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. You started to say this doesn't happen very often. How frequently does it happen? Procedural failures, just off the top of my head, I think I'm up at about, I have several hundred cases I'm monitoring on a regular basis. I'm not representing all those people I have associates. Of those, let's just say of 300 cases, I know that I'm going to have five or six 
that there's going to be something a little funky going on. I got one right now at an agency that I think could be headed to federal district court because there's something funny going on between management and security. So I would say it's a small fraction, but it's enough to be alert alert for them. And what should people do to avoid getting caught up in some type of situation that could result in that loss? For example, you know, stay out of jail, <laughs> don't drive drunk or have big gambling debts. Well, the most important thing is to grab a hold on the internet of a copy of a document called Seed 4, S-E-A-D 4. And I tell all my clients to read that every year the week of their birthday. Not on their birthday, that's kind of dorky, but at least the week of their birthday, they should refresh their memory. Don't rely on agency training because most of it stinks. I know I've developed some of it and I wasn't proud of the program I developed. Uh, It just doesn't work on the slideshow. You need to read that regulation once a year. And then you need to get advice on when to report problems and you need to realize that reporting your security officer is in your interest. There's this huge internet chat board sort of uh, narrative out there that says that you shouldn't report to your security officer. It's wrong. Every one of my clients who reports and reports up front does well in the end. Sometimes they have to adjudicate, sometimes they don't. But reporting is your best friend. That's how you stay abreast of what's going on. And then I'm not trying to be self-promotional, but if you've invested so much into your security clearance and your federal employee, if you're like in your mid-30s and this is your career, you need to sock away some money every payday to to hire an attorney if you get into a situation where you really don't know, because your security officer may not be able to tell you. Because remember, security officer is both looking for your violations and advising you on how not to do violations. There's kind of a conflict of interest there. But when you hire an attorney, you own that attorney, right? You paid that attorney. You paid her or him to give you advice. And they're going to give you the advice to get you out of the trouble. And here's a question on the process itself. The apparatus for security clearance has been moving to what they call continuous vetting. That is, they monitor databases, public information sources about people's activities to see if they remain worthy of clearance. Has that resulted in, can you tell, an increase in the number of revocations or had no effect or maybe reduced them? Yeah, I I talked to a security officer uh, two weeks ago at an intelligence community element who um, uh, it's doubled uh, his caseload. So I think that's happening throughout the system. And what it's going to do, it's going to shift. It's going to shift the focus of the security community onto debt, onto gambling, onto criminal violations, onto all the things that are easily trackable with algorithms, with artificial intelligence. The critical function is how do you get to the more nuanced things, guideline B, guideline C, the espionage stuff. That's not going to come up as as easily in the uh, systems that continuous monitoring relies on. But for right now, there's a massive focus on people with bad debt, drug issues, if there's been uh, something through local uh, law enforcement. And it's now so automated that it's an email that goes from the supercomputer to your security officer. There's no human eyes on that process. It just gets spit out right away. So, yes, there's going to be a lot more scrutiny. And the theory on gambling or other types of debts means that the belief is the person could be suspect to bribery. Is that the theory here? Yeah, if you're running high debts, then uh, the WASP from Cuba or the SSB from Russia could come in and say, hey, you got a $50,000 gambling debt. We'll give you 100000 if you give us the secret manual. 
So don't go to any off-the-market poker games run by Russians. No, that's a bad idea. And dating websites that are in Eastern Europe, not a good idea. Most of them are fronts for foreign intelligence services. Dan Meyer is managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinke. And that's it for today's FedLife. We'll be back next week with more on pay, benefits, and your career. I'm Tom Tenen. Thanks for listening to FedLife here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. You can listen to this episode and any past episodes anytime at federalnewsnetwork.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Search FedLife.